Every day on my drive to work, I travel through Virginia's beautiful countryside. I pass the Birdwood Golf Course and the Farmington Country Club. And right there, right as I turn into work, is a railroad track, partially obscured by a line of trees. Last week, two colleagues, Justin Reed and Cassadare, explored one of those areas. So do you have to walk like through that gate? Yeah, let's see if maybe we can just walk right around it. I think we should try it. Yeah. I don't know. My experience of being a white boy is you can just walk in places, so I don't know. <laughs> My experience is being a, a black person. You, you can walk pretty much anywhere as long as you're carrying food or <laughs> a mop. Yeah, we should have maybe thought about this a little bit better. But it's so quiet on the side of the road. Like, you can hear, like, insects. We recently learned something new and troubling about the scenic landscape. I think somewhere around here. Makes me almost scared to step anywhere. It's like broken glass and stuff. It's like people have like kind of used this as like a trash yeah, area too. Things. So how far are we from the Virginia Humanities Office? So there's a forest here, a train track, a line of trees, highway, Virginia Humanities Office. Maybe 50 yards total at, at most. Local historians say that spot, right across the street from the Withgudreason studio, is where the lynching of a man named John Henry James took place in 1898. So being here at the site where John Henry James was lynched, it feels strange. It's, it's eerie, but at the same time, very calm, uh, despite all the noise and the traffic, um, all the insects. I still feel this calmness being in this space, almost as if it's a cemetery. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to describe because I almost feel guilty for having this calm feeling because of what occurred here. But maybe that's like the space, like trying to heal itself. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, we bring you on a pilgrimage for John Henry James. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Oh yes, this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, this little light of mine. Oh yes, I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine. After white supremacists descended on Charlottesville last August, and the discovery recently of the lynching site of John Henry James, the community of Charlottesville is trying to heal itself. As part of that, residents from all walks of life took a bus trip through the U.S. South. The journey would end in a symbolic burial for John Henry James at the new National Memorial to Lynching in Montgomery, Alabama. But it started right across the street from where I'm speaking now. Reasons Cassadare was on the bus as part of that pilgrimage to Montgomery. It was organized by Andrea Douglas and Jelaine Schmidt. She's a professor of religious studies at the University of Virginia, and Cass spoke with her 
about the legacy of lynching locally and nationally, asking first, who was John Henry James? Well, uh, he sold ice cream in the streets, sold uh, hokey pokey ice cream. And uh, so we can imagine him, you know, kind of going up and down the streets of Charlottesville with a cart, probably had a bell on it, you know, kids coming out, paying him, you know, to get their ice cream treats. And uh, the Daily Progress kind of insinuated that he was uh, someone who was in and out of jail, uh, that he might have served on some of the convict labor forces around town and in the county as well. There might be people out there who are saying, why are you memorializing this guy who was accused of doing violent things? Well, first of all, we don't know for a fact that 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 he uh, committed the crime of which he was accused, which was the the sexual assault on a uh, a young white woman who was the daughter of a of a prominent Charlottesville family. We, we just don't know because he was not afforded his rights to a a trial. And so uh, we memorialize him because we recognize today that his lynching was part of a, a much broader and you know, institutionalized targeting of African Americans uh, in ways that terrorized them and kept them in their place. So we memorialize this in order to recognize uh, the history and the lingering effects of racial terror lynching. You're saying the phrase racial terror lynching. Can you just describe why it's important for you to say all three words? Sure. Racial terror lynching of, of African Americans had an entirely different effect than did the attacks and the extrajudicial murders of white alleged criminals. You know, in the case of African Americans who were victims of racial terror lynching, uh, this had the effect of terrorizing an entire community of local black folks. And this is sort of the push that accelerated the exodus of blacks from the rural South into the urban North. Also, you know, another distinction we can draw was the mistreatment and mangling and desecration of the bodies of these black victims of racial terror lynching. When white people were lynched, you know, say a cattle rustler, they were hung, the crowd stood there. It wasn't usually the mass spectacle uh, that it was in the case of black victims. Uh, and then, you know, as if it were not enough to publicly hang the accused, the mob often took extra steps to mangle the body, burning the body, uh, shooting bullets into the body, as was the case with uh, John Henry James, cutting clothing uh, away from the victim's body, even cutting off body parts to keep his souvenirs. And so this is a different level of violence. And, uh, you know, these were much more extensive. There are many, many more documented cases of racial terror lynching as, as opposed to uh, white victims of lynching. Hmm. So to you, this is not a story of crime and punishment. It's a story of terror and spectacle. Yes, and vengeance, too, and an abrogation of the rule of law. If we can just imagine the sorts of quiet conversations that must have occurred, you know, around kitchen tables after the kids had gone to bed, you know, in the, in the local black community here in Charlottesville, you know, did you hear what happened? And then they did this to him, and then they did that. And uh, there was, uh, you know, after his murder the next day on July the 13th, 1898, uh, there was a black undertaker in town at a business, uh, and he was present at the coroner's inquest the next day. And he reported, you know, for the record, that 
uh, John Henry James's body had been. He counted 30 bullet holes, you know, in his body. So it wasn't enough to just lynch him, to just hang him, but also his, you know, his, his uh, body had been mistreated as well. You know, this is part of a common narrative that took place across the South and in black communities as these acts of racial terror lynching were committed by local white citizens. You know, and in the case of John Henry James, uh, none of these people in the mob of 150 were masked. They, they were, you know, it was reported in newspaper. They were unmasked, you know, and the sheriff and the, and the police chief were there. Mm. And yet no one was ever charged with murder, mm. you know. So uh, it was a message to the black community that, you know, leading white members of the white community could murder black people with impunity and never be called to account. You know, it was a, it was a stark reminder to the black community that they had no legal recourse, no protection under the law. The day before we departed on this journey, you and a small group of Charlottesville residents collected soil from the site of John Henry James's lynching. Can you tell me what it felt like to do that collection? Sure. About 50 members of the community. There were historians. There were descendants of enslaved people from the area, uh, uh, public officials, you know, just just a, a lot of different folks gathered in a grove of trees in a thick wooded area, very overgrown, which is the site where John Henry James was lynched on July 12, 1898. Clergy kind of, you know, led, uh, you know, with, with a blessing to kind of revive this memory and and to kind of enfold Mr. James into uh, the community's history, you know, that that is known and recited. And then we, uh, you know, gathered soil from the site. So it was very solemn. It was funereal. It was very sobering. Uh, People were crying. Uh, you know, the, the conclusion of the ceremony, I uh, poured out a flask of uh, Virginia distilled single malt whiskey, you know, because uh, Mr. James's last action uh, as a free man, he, he was apprehended at Dudley's Bar, you know, down on Main Street in, in Charlottesville. And uh, it's a um, recurring gesture that's made in other uh, mortuary rites across the African diaspora, uh, you know, to pour out kind of, you know, a, a libation for the dead, you know. And so with that, you know, the ceremony closed. So we started in Charlottesville and we ended up in Alabama. How did you decide where we would stop and the importance of those stops? So we began on July 8th, which was the one-year anniversary of the Ku Klux Klan rally in Charlottesville. And our first stop was in Appomattox, which is the site of General Lee's surrender to General Grant, which officially ended the Civil War. So it seemed important to make a stop there at Appomattox in order to understand how this very flattering version of, of, of the history of General Lee, how this, where this had its beginnings. Then we had a n- numerous other stops. Then we went through Danville, and there in Danville, uh, there was uh, what's called Bloody Monday, and this was in uh, uh, 1963 when uh, the police attacked local black civil rights activists there. And so we got to hear from the now uh, elderly activists from that time about what was going on there in Danville. And it was so bad that uh, Martin Luther King pronounced Danville, Virginia, to have been you know, the, the worst site that he'd been to uh, thus far in the, in the civil rights struggle. 
So that was just the first day, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and then from there, drove right through Pelham, North Carolina, which is the headquarters of the loyal white knights of the Ku Klux Klan, which came to Charlottesville one year before in order to hold their rally at the Stonewall Jackson statue. So when you walk into the EJI room where we were, there's jars of soil in all different colors all around the state of Alabama. And you know that the jars of soil from other states are also located somewhere on that site. Why do you think that soil collection is the is the appropriate gesture or symbol or right? Yeah, well, in the case of John Henry James, we're not entirely sure where he's buried. I mean, we, we know he was buried, you know, in some sort of pauper's grave. But we do have, you know, the, the ground where this uh, murder occurred. Um, and so that's, you know, kind of one way to, to take into account how we have a landscape of terror, landscape of trauma in Albemarle County. And the soil from our local landscape of trauma joins that of, of other communities, you know, who've experienced this too. And so it seems appropriate then to, you know, to have, have soil there from all these different sites. Why was it important to you to have different groups of people from the community on the bus? And how did you determine who should come or who you should invite on this trip? It's important that the community is on board with this, that, you know, that there's uh, broad knowledge of this racial terror event that, that took place in our community and consensus as much as is possible that this act is, is worthy of noting. We wanted folks to have discussions. We, you know, we wanted to process what we were learning. But, you know, on the one hand, we didn't want black travelers, you know, to kind of feel burdened with perhaps, you know, white people who might be kind of facing this this ugly history, uh, you know, for, for one of the first time, you know, and kind of uh, looking for a shoulder to cry on. You know, <laughs> black people have kind of done a lot of uncompensated emotional labor. And we kind of have a thing about uncompensated labor in the <laughs> black community, given given our history, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and that's just not the job of black people to, to kind of shoulder that extra burden. We already have our own collective historical trauma that we're dealing with. And that's black people's starting place, you know, is, is to be visiting these sites and to be seeing why it is that we have the conditions that are still affecting, you know, uh, daily life. So in order to kind of address the uh, different concerns of different demographic groups uh, on our trip, we had along with us clergy and therapist team whose job it was, you know, to tend to folks that, you know, might be dealing with different issues. Was there anybody when you were planning this and going around pitching the idea, was there anybody who was like, I don't know if this is the right thing to do at this time, or even why are you dredging up this stuff from 1898? Sure. Yeah. What what kind of pushback did you hear to the idea of the pilgrimage, and how did you respond to it? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I mean, no one approached us directly, you know, uh, w with their criticisms, but we did we we did hear about it. Uh, you know that there was uh, you know an older white gentleman in the community who had memory of where the lynching tree was you know who was upset and refused to cooperate you know with one of our historians who was kind of seeking out greater knowledge and he said to her why would anyone want to commemorate a lynching hmm. you know you know what he was accused of don't you you know what why, why is this you know a project you want to engage in you know there were some older black folks. And again, you know, I heard this secondhand, you know, who were saying, you know, why are, why are we focusing on the negative? You know, why don't we focus on kind of positive 
events, you know, in local black history, you know, and, and you know, and th there's a point, there can never be enough accounts, you know, that are shared of stories of black resilience. It's not that these stories aren't being told, that there are some people who would rather kind of foreground, you know, the, these sorts of positive things and kind of take a more reconciliationist approach, shall we say. But some of these narratives that have been uh, repressed, that are very painful, narratives of violence, repression, and this sort of thing, um, we need to face this past to kind of have the full scope of experience revealed, you know, so that we know more about this trauma, you know, that is, has influenced our community. How have you been changed emotionally by the last year? And then how have you been changed as a scholar? Uh, it has deepened my affection uh, for Charlottesville, notwithstanding all the flaws that we have and all the pain. And, and I have to say, you know, I was in the streets, you know, during the summer of hate in 2017. Uh, you know, I was, you know, suffered a tear gas attack at the Klan rally on July the 8th. And that that angered me. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, anger, <laughs> uh, anxiety a sense of uh, the necessity, you know, of doing this work kind of burns within me with more intensity, I would say. So, yeah, those are the kind of traversing a different emotional landscape than than I do with my usual work. Yeah, absolutely. I think I, I love that you said something about that sense of connection with Charlottesville because I just moved here and suddenly I'm on this bus with all these people and mm -hmm. in, especially in a town that is racially segregated. There yeah. are very few instances where I would have been on a bus like that looked like the bus that I was on. Mm -hmm. And that was my introduction to this place. And mm -hmm. I was like, I'm in this loving, curious, mm -hmm. committed community of people all of a yeah. sudden that I did not know existed and I might not have learned yeah, about if right. I hadn't been on that bus. Everybody on that bus has in their living memory some instance of white supremacist violence that they witnessed yes. or experienced. Mm -hmm. Nobody on that bus was alive in 1898, right. but a lot of people on that bus were alive in 1963 to 64, and everybody was alive in 2017. Right, that's right. So yeah, everyone, you know, within living memory who was on that bus, you know, what was carrying this trauma with us. Yeah, well, I hope that you're successful in bringing that open secret into openness rather than secrecy. Right, And we in, need to face it. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely, and, and that for all members of our community, hearing those stories and facing them with honesty as opposed to disavowal or fear, that we can use that to move forward. Okay. Here we go. Sway, everybody. We shall overcome. Yes, we shall Jelaine Schmidt is a professor of religious studies at the University of Virginia, and along with Andrea Douglas, was one of the organizers of the Charlottesville pilgrimage to Montgomery, Alabama. As we said, Cass Adair was on that trip. He's with me now. Cass, what was it like to be on that five-day pilgrimage? What stayed with you that you can't let go of? Yeah, so when my fellow travelers and I have been getting together, there's this one experience that really sticks with us. 
It was in this museum in Atlanta, and you sit down at a reproduction of a lunch counter, like the ones that civil rights activists fought to integrate in the early 1960s. You sit on that circular seat, and you put these big over-ear headphones on, you put your hands flat on the counter, and then you close your eyes. And you're not really sure what's about to happen, but then all of a sudden, you hear this. participated in the American Civil Rights Sit-In Movement. It was really hard to watch so many of my fellow travelers, these people who I'd gotten really close with after the four days that we'd been on the trip so far, just weeping, like shaken and in tears. I caught up with two of them afterwards, and we're still in the museum when I'm recording this, so you'll hear some 50s-era pop music and some clips from a Martin Luther King speech in the background, too. My name is Susan Bro. I'm, I'm here with Seville Pilgrimage because my daughter Heather was killed. I'm Catherine Lawn. I'm from Charlottesville. I could remind myself it was fake, but if it was real, I think I really would have been freaked out. People beside me getting dragged away, hearing somebody getting beaten and kicked behind me, and my chair getting yanked, and, and in real life my clothes would have been yanked and my hair probably pulled. and. That's pretty scary. Also, I mean, it really reminded me of August 12th. We had been through training about nonviolent direct action, right? And one of the things that we had practiced was being harassed by white supremacists, being harassed by police. And uh, we were told that we might find that the hardest thing was maintaining nonviolent discipline in the face of it. And that's what I found in real life on that day was the hardest thing was having those people marching past, saying the hateful things they were saying and um, maintaining my own sense of peace or calm or something and not retaliating. Well, I wasn't there on August 12th, but I can imagine from what I've seen in the videos of that day. Of course, having watched Heather's day over and over and over again from a million different angles and all of it, yes, I can see where that would be that way. That's frightening. You know, I think that what happened in those sit-ins, they were, when people whispered, we want to kill you, they meant it. Right? And, when, and when I was in the streets on August 12th, I felt afraid, but it wasn't until later that I realized they really meant it, you know? 
my connection to it is raising black boys who have experienced, you know, I was my 14-year-old son was put on the ground and handcuffed just this spring for walking through our neighborhood after dark. A neighbor thought he was a prowler, they called the police, the police showed up, and it's, so it, it doesn't feel abstract. The final stop was Montgomery. You went to the offices of the Equal Justice Initiative, which is an important civil rights organization. What was that like? So this was actually a surprise to me, but it turned out that the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative, Brian Stevenson, made a special trip just to be with our group from Charlottesville. So here's a little bit of what he had to say. In the American South. When that incident in Charlottesville took place in 1898, hundreds of black people fled. They no longer felt like it could be safe. My people are actually from Caroline County, Virginia, Bowling Green. And my grandmother fled uh, in 1899 when her parents no longer thought it was safe. And she went to the North as a refugee in exile from this terror. And all the skills that her family had cultivated and crafted were abandoned. And she had to do domestic work for the rest of her life. And that's a consequence of this legacy. And we haven't talked about it. And then we had this amazing period, and I know you've been on the civil rights pilgrimage, and you've been to some wonderful places, and we think all of those places are important. When you go into our museum, you're going to see a kind of different museum. It's going to be a slightly different experience than perhaps some of the other experiences that you've seen. And I think it's important that we acknowledge the heroism and the activism of incredible people like Rosa Parks and, and Johnny Carr and Baird Rustin and Dr. King and C.T. Vivian and Diane Nash and all the amazing people that did such extraordinary things. But I'm going to probably get in trouble here because I think we need to work on the narrative about the civil rights era too. Because I'm going to be honest, I think we've gotten too celebratory when we talk about civil rights in America. I do. I do. I do. You know, when you talk about civil rights, I hear people talking about the civil rights movement, and it's starting to sound like a three-day carnival. On day one, Rosa Parks didn't give up her seat on a bus. On day two, Dr. King led a march on Washington. And on day three, we changed all the laws and racism was over. And it would be great if that's our history, but that's not our history. Our history is that for decades in this country, we told black people in Charlottesville, you can't go to school because you're black. We said, you can't vote because you're black. My parents were humiliated every day of their lives. They'd see those signs that said white and colored. They weren't directions, they were assaults. They created injuries. And we haven't addressed those injuries. And people were told, you just have to deal with that injury on your own. And we did something worse during that era than just what we did to black people. We actually told white people in this country that opposition to racial equality is a noble thing. It's a just thing. It's an honorable thing. Our elected leaders organized this resistance to integration. Our newest report, Segregation in America, tries to talk about this. But we actually made it honorable to be oppositional to integration, to be oppositional uh, to creating opportunities for black people. And that era was never addressed. And so today, we're living at a time when there's a presumption of dangerousness and guilt that follows black and brown people. And it doesn't matter how kind you are, it doesn't matter how hardworking you are, it doesn't matter how noble you are, if you're black or brown, you go places in this country where you have to navigate a presumption of dangerousness and guilt. Paul and Silas, bound in jail, had no money for the gold they bail. Keep your eyes on the prize.
This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is With Good Reason. The white supremacist attacks in Charlottesville, Virginia, August 11th and 12, 2017, spurred a national conversation about race and hatred in our country. For teachers, this has meant finding new ways to talk about racism in the classroom, even with kids as young as elementary school. Earlier this summer, a group of teachers from across Virginia got together here in Charlottesville they were attending the Kellogg Teacher Summer Institute, a retreat to support the teaching of race and identity in public schools. Over lunch, some teachers stood up to share their success stories. Here's a little of what they had to say. I teach in an urban school, and a lot of my students are you know, black, some Latino, but I created our literary magazine. And I decided that when I did this, because I knew beforehand when it was done, that a lot of kids who were allowed to participate were like honors kids. And I was adamant, I said, no, I want to hear from the students who are considered the troubled, bad kids. I want to hear about their experiences, because this is probably the only time they will have that, that time. The literary magazine turned into a forum of safe space where they could share experiences that were ugly, beautiful. I've had poems in there from people, students who were, uh, have wrote poems about their parents' heroin addiction. I had poems in there and I chose, and I, I said, you're not gonna get in trouble for this, but I'm gonna do it. I had poems in there about a young woman who dealt with being molested, okay? So I found that allowing, just um, getting out of the way and just being brave enough to say, you know what, your story is important. I'm going to publish it. I'm going to make sure everybody who publishes in this magazine, gets, you're going to get a copy. Your parents are going to get a copy. And guess what? Every staff member and faculty member in the school is going to get a copy. That's how I allowed students to change the narrative and um, to allow a lot of diverse voices to be shared. Greetings, my name is Masiyahu Raul. I'm the K-12 Instructional Specialist for uh, Richmond Public Schools. We're overhauling our fifth grade American Experience uh, course and we're gonna change it to Virginia Heroes to highlight Latino and African American and Asian members of the Virginia community that haven't gotten their just say. So the way that we affect change and change the narrative is by empowering the people who do the work every day. So instead of me sitting in the ivory tower saying, I think this is an excellent idea that people should do, <laughs> instead we go down to the ground floor and talk to the people and help them to do the work for change. Thank you. In Northern Virginia, in Arlington, there was a need for a voice that wasn't heard, which was the African-American voice. And what I found was only my advanced placement students heard a different perspective of history. And with the help of one of my good friends, I bounced this idea off of her of adding African-American studies. It was a tough fight. And there were things that people said to me during this time 
that weren't very kind because a lot of people didn't believe that any children would honestly want to sign up for African-American studies. They said, why in the world would kids want to take a history course that really isn't required? And so when people say things like that, it really does bring down, I would say, the value of your story. When people ask, well, why would a child want to take an elective course about a, a voice, a group of people who helped build this country. So with that, because my children needed it, I was able to kind of, by God's grace, skip every step that they said was in front of me that I had to overcome. So next year, I will have 60 children who voluntarily are taking African American studies, a course that they said, well, who would sign up for it anyway? So. <laughs> We just heard In Order from Tracy Spurl and Sarah Vannin from Norfolk, Masayahu Israel from Richmond, and Antoinette Waters from Arlington. For teachers in Charlottesville, however, where white supremacists killed one woman and injured dozens of others last year, teaching tolerance feels even more urgent. After the Kellogg Institute, we caught up with two Charlottesville educators, Anne Ernst and Rachel Caldwell, Anne's the school librarian for Charlottesville High School, and Rachel is a fourth-grade teacher at Burnley Moran Elementary School. How have you each changed as teachers, librarians, in that year, would you think? For me, in the elementary school level, it's set a tone of urgency. There's no longer a time to say, well, maybe I'll get to that at another time if we finish our regular curriculum. Now it's like, this is my curriculum, or it will be embedded in all of my curriculum. For me, at the high school, it gave me a real sense of need to allow students to raise their voices and ask their questions and be empowered to be a part of the discussions in our community. Rachel, what specifically are you doing differently in your classroom, do you think, this year since the armed white supremacists came to town? Definitely been talking a lot more openly about race and allowing students to ask their questions about it. We read a lot of books relating to slavery, Jim Crow, civil rights, modern day injustice in the world, the refugee crisis, um, thinking, asking my students what role do they play in the world today, we did a huge month-long project for Black History Month solely focusing on our local history in Charlottesville. So all the things you've learned about slavery, Jim Crow, and civil rights, what did that look like right here in our backyard in Charlottesville? You're a fourth-grade teacher? Yes. You teach nine-year-olds? Mm-hmm, nine and ten. Do they naturally talk about race or even see race, do you think? Yeah, they do in the sense that they will, if someone is upset with someone, sometimes they'll fall back on really negative comments. I'll hear it, and then we'll talk like, wow, let's stop as a class. We need, we need to talk about this. Like, how is it okay to talk about race, and how is it really not okay to be referring to um, a person's race? And sometimes there's things where, like, we'll read a book, and it will use the word Negro, and then kids will be like, oh, my gosh, you're not supposed to say that. <laughs> and then we have to stop and we have like a really long conversation about the language changes, what's appropriate now, what was appropriate then, what was never appropriate, like things like that. Even though fourth graders are reading chapter books pretty fluently, we spend a lot of time reading picture books. They lend themselves to great discussion. The images are usually um, really powerful as well. And then we can constantly refer to them and they come part of our classroom culture. 
When we discuss slavery, we read books like Henry's Freedom Box, The Wagon, Underground, Moses, Clara's Freedom Quilt, Crossing Bakchito, Freedom in Congo Square, Dave the Potter, and F is for Freedom. When we talk about Jim Crow, we read When Marion Sang and I Too Am America. When we do the Civil Rights Era, we read The Youngest Marcher, The Case for Loving, The Story of Ruby Bridges, Martin's Big Words, Sit In, How Four Friends Stood Up by Sitting Down, Rosa, and We March. And then when we discuss modern day stories, we read Firebird, Radiant Child, Trombone Shorty, Journey, Refugee, How Many Days to America, The Name Jar, Let's Talk About Race, and I could continue. Would you put the list of these books and authors' names on our website so other people that are interested could find it? I'd be happy to, and I always love suggestions. Do nine-year-olds want to talk about these issues? Absolutely. Yeah, hands down, for sure. When, when I first brought up August 12th, like a week or two into school, I said, I think it's time that we talk about what happened here a few weeks ago. They were all like, oh, my gosh, we didn't think we were allowed to talk about it. Our parents told us not to bring it up. Like, yes, let's talk about it. And what did they say? Well, they had questions. They wanted to talk to each other about their experiences. We held um, what's called a fishbowl where the kids are sitting in a circle. They're facing each other. Some kids are on an inner circle. Some kids are on an outer circle. The inner circle will discuss a question, and then the outer circle is just listening, and then we switch. And so kids are listening to what each other has to say, and they're able to agree, disagree, add to, clarify, um, ask questions, and... Our final question after we did this for a couple weeks was, do you think we have equal rights today? And they were able to say, like, no, I really don't because we're fighting this statue issue here in Charlottesville. Or I think we do, but we have a ways to go. Or I think there's equal rights in some places of the world, but not others. And I don't want to say we do until the whole world feels a certain way. So they have really deep and beautiful thoughts when you allow them to talk amongst each other and just listen. And what about at the high school level? You're the librarian. What do you see? High school students are sort of tired of reading about Rosa Parks, and they want to read about authentic experiences with teens of similar heritage. We have really increased circulation around those kinds of books, especially because Charlottesville City Schools are, is such a diverse community. We have something like 35 languages spoken in our school system. So it really feels important to me to be able to reach out to any group of students. Rachel, you've just come back from a pilgrimage from Charlottesville to Montgomery, where a number of people from the Charlottesville community were carrying the soil from a sacred spot where John Henry James was lynched in 1898. I'm wondering if that experience changed you. Absolutely. We met so many members of these communities who are still living. For example, in Danville, we met with four older adults now who were teenagers at the time. They were beaten when they were peacefully protesting on library steps. The library was segregated. Um, and realizing these community members still live in Danville, the people who actively and violently oppose them are probably still living in the community their descendants are definitely probably living in the community and realizing that we are not very far past this time period. Last year, our ninth grade team taught the hate you give across the entire ninth grade. 
And then we had Nick Stone come to our school and worked with four classes of seniors just to sort of have that understanding of how does a person survive, you know, horrible incidents within a community? You know, how do you thrive in a community when you're a minority? Do you think that students are getting ahead of teachers when it comes to what they need and the kinds of conversations they need to have, especially as they get older? Yeah, it's interesting. I was thinking while Anne was speaking about how, hmm, I'm not doing that enough. I'm not checking in with our high schoolers. And um, I don't think we tap into their ideas, their geniuses enough. They have strong opinions. They have strong feelings. And I don't always know them. And that's a place for me to uh, think about my growth as an educator of tapping into that. Rachel, do you get pushback from parents? Does some of what you're doing and some of what you're teaching nine-year-olds feel to parents as though we're being political? That's a great question. Um, I get asked that a lot. I have to be honest that in our community here in Charlottesville, I'm extremely lucky to have very supportive parents. Many of our parents are also in the activist community. They bring their students to a lot of the protests or meetings that are happening in town. I have not had any specific pushback. But I do think that if I was teaching in a different community, it might be different. You have friends who've told you that? Yeah, I have a friend who teaches um, in a rural community here in Virginia. And he has told me he would never be able to consider even thinking about bringing these topics up in his classroom. Really? Mm -hmm. I have a friend who's a librarian in one of our local private schools who has had some specific pushback about reading in her school. And she was supported by her administration and the school kept the books and had discussions within the parent community and, you know, were able to move past that. And I'd like to add a little bit that our curriculum is already political. It's already been decided by a committee in Richmond what we are and are not teaching. And all I'm doing is bringing in history. It's all true events that have happened in our past. I would like to kind of push back on the pushback that everything we do in the classroom is political to some extent. Someone has decided for us what our curriculum is. I'm just kind of reclaiming that to make sure that all voices are heard, all students see themselves reflected in the classroom, that we represent a fair view of history and events that have happened, and help students think about their own future in the now and where their place is now. How much do you think teachers matter when it comes to bridging the racial divide that way? Um, As an educator, I think it's incredibly important. We have so much power. We're with them for six hours a day doing really heavy content instruction. We can open their eyes and their world to something they've never seen or heard about before. We're helping them learn how to interact with each other, how to interact with their world, how to see injustice and think about it, addressing it. Um, I think it's incredibly important and really essential that we're doing that work. I think those are incredibly important points. And I think it's wonderful that at the elementary age, you can bring in these sort of mentor texts. That's a little bit harder for us at the high school level because everything is so separate and your social studies teacher only teaches social studies and you're harder pressed to, you know, get them to teach a novel. 
so, you know, we're really trying to be thoughtful and mindful of how do we combine these curricular ideas at the high school level. Um, And, you know, some of what we look at are the more elementary models and things like what you're doing. Do you sometimes feel alone in doing this, Rachel, when you're trying to think about how can I reach these kids? Mm -hmm. How can I make a difference for them? Or do you have support? I know the people in my building who support me, and I'm able to go to them 24-7. So you end up, when you're doing this work, you know the people who are right on board with you that have resources they can give you, have feedback. I've found those people in my circle. So I know I can go to the teacher across the hall and say, hey, do you have the book? Let's talk about race, because I need to borrow it. And I saw you checked it out from the library. So um, I have really supportive administration. I have friends who are teachers in other communities that are doing this work and can reach out to them at any time. So I definitely have a circle of very supportive people around me that inspire me. What's unfinished? I think there's a lot of fear. You know, race is this word that we don't really talk about in schools, even though it's such a part of our achievement gap conversations. We kind of say, you know, gap group one, gap group two. We assign these kind of code words. We never say like, hey, Like, our black students are not doing that well. We need to talk about this. If I can just add that I think Mm. we're also afraid to make the mistakes Mm. that we decide not to have the conversations. Something that my administration has already started talking about is forming a small group of teachers that are interested in talking about this work, um, having discussions and inviting anyone who wants to participate to be a part of it. A small group of people that feel comfortable together can really be the impetus for school-wide change because, you know, I'm not perfect at doing this. I'm just learning. I'm just trying day by day and allowing other people to have that safe space. I think that's a great idea. I think that, you know, it is important to invite people to participate and not force it. We have talked about as a city that sometimes, yeah, we force, like, we're doing this dialogue on race and everyone is participating and it doesn't go that well. And so then we say, forget it. We're not going to do that. We're not ready for this. But it really, maybe the setup wasn't right or maybe the, the training wasn't adequate. It takes a lot of structure. Anne and Rachel, thank you for talking with me today on With Good Reason. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting us. That was Ann Ernst and Rachel Caldwell, educators from Charlottesville Public Schools. We'll close today's show with words of wisdom from Nick Stone, a popular young adult author who visited Charlottesville High School last year. She offered students there, many of whom were still reeling from the white supremacist attacks, this advice on writing and life. Honestly, I learned more from teenagers than I think they learned from me. And there's something about that kind of, that symbiosis and that that mutual engagement that has the power to really enact some change. I got invited to Charlottesville High School um, and it ended up being pretty amazing. They were working on these research projects where they had to choose a social issue or something in the world that bothered them. They had to do research on it, and then they had to come up with a plan for how they could enact some change in that area. So I saw everything from um, there were some environmental uh, concerns, animal cruelty was one. There was even one that was about the legalization of pot. And talking to them, like you could tell how, how hungry they were to do something. 
for this particular paper, it's important that you kind of add in something personal so people actually know why you care. Um, So teaching them how to be authentic, basically giving them permission to write this paper in their own voice, be willing to explore, like do your research, you know, be imperfect, be authentic, know that you're going to trip up and that imperfection comes with, you know, you correct yourself. Um, there is an expectation that if you are involved in social justice in any way, you will have all of your ducks in a row from the get-go. And, like, that's just not realistic. So I think I think we each have to be okay with tripping up and with being wrong um, and, and having ourselves, like, having somebody correct us. Like, we have to be open to correction, uh, especially in this social justice game. Like, I've even had things that I've said stuff on and like had to backtrack and be like, you know what, that's actually not a good thing to say. I did a bunch of class periods back to back, but in the, it was either the first one or the second one, I had a young man. um, So I am a black woman, by the way, those of you who are unaware as you listen to this, I'm a queer black woman. And um, I had this straight white guy come up to me after I, after my little spiel and like I took questions and we like vibed a little bit with I, like the class and I had this little fun conversation after I did my part. Um, and he hands me this handful of tiny origami swans that I still have and will never ever get rid of. And he puts them in my hand and he says, I just want you to know I really respect you. To be a queer black woman, in this space where this horrible thing happened, you know, six months before um, that, you know, this, this hate, this hateful thing happened to have a straight white boy come up to me and tell me that he respected me and that he sat and like made me these origami swans while, while I was talking. That will never, ever leave me. Um, it was probably one of the most powerful things I've ever had happen. And it... It like fueled me in a way that not many things have. Resilience is something that develops out of hardship. And I think that I think that what's really the most important thing for teens, for parents, for anybody in Charlottesville coming up on this anniversary, make sure you like love somebody on that day. Smile at somebody, do something nice, random acts of kindness. Like use that day to go out of your way to be good to other people and to love other people and to step outside of your comfort zone. Smile at a stranger who looks different from you. Make sure that you are doing your part to make Charlottesville like an inclusive place. I think that I think that those tiny things make huge ripples. That was Nick Stone, author of Dear Martin and the forthcoming book, Odd One Out. This program was made possible in part by a grant from the W.K. Kellogg Foundation as part of its Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation Initiative. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, connecting doctors and patients through telemedicine to deliver high-quality care throughout Virginia, the U.S., and the world, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. Our interns are Emily Hayes and Adriana Gallo. 
We had help this week from Andrew Howard at WABE in Atlanta. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.